Well, as you might imagine, I, I often think about what it is going to take for Christianity to not only survive, but to flourish in our time. Maybe you think about that too, but let's just bring it a little closer to home because I happen to like to think very locally and in the particular. Bring it closer to home for Village Church. What does it mean for each of us to have a growing, sustained, and winsome faith? Each of us and all of us together. Let me just suggest four things really quickly. First, God must continue to do what only He can do. Specifically, that He will continue to fulfill the Pentecost promise of Joel 2 and to pour out His Spirit on all flesh and that Jesus will fulfill His promise in Matthew 16 to build His church such that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. These are not ultimately up to us. These are up to the Lord. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that a healthy Christianity will remember that it is by grace that we are saved through faith, not by our own works. The Christian life is not moralism. It's a new identity marked by deep gratitude, radical gratitude that inspires our love and our worship, and it empowers devotion of body, mind, and spirit. We're dependent on God's grace for that. Third, flourishing Christianity will depend on embracing that we actually join two millennia and beyond of people who've lived this story. It's a communal reality, not merely an individual spirituality. A timeless team sport, we might call it. We absolutely do and will need each other to press in and to press on. And without the fourth one, these first three are basically impossible, or really impossible for us to know and to keep knowing and to keep remembering. And before I summarize the fourth one, I want to tell you a story. On Monday, as the rain was falling off and on, I went out on our office porch to finish a phone call, and there I saw a large duffel bag that was trying in vain to hide behind one of uh, the chairs on the porch. A few minutes later, I saw a young man walking toward me across the lawn, and I recognized him as a guy I'd met named Zach, a gaunt 20-something homeless man who's been hanging around and even sleeping around the church grounds. And as he began to retrieve his bag, I ended my phone call abruptly. You know who you are. I'm sorry about that. Sorry, not sorry. And I invited him to sit with me for a bit. He plopped down and started rummaging through the duffel bag. And I asked him, well, how's it going? How's it going, Zach? And he said, I'm still here. And I said, it's mess, isn't it? And I could tell by the sores on his body and the paraphernalia that we've been picking up around our property. And he said, yeah, I've tried to get clean. It's just hard. I've tried. And I said, I understand that. I really do. And I told him there's some good programs around here and we'll help him to get in one if he likes. And he said, he started into the complications and they are real complications. He said that he didn't have any ID and how hard it would be for him to actually get ID, and then he'd have to separate from his girlfriend, who was also an addict, and at the moment, he didn't even know where she was. And I said, that first thing is, is fixable. We can figure out the ID, but the second is just a hard fact. You can't get clean for her if you're with her. People know these things better than I do. And he said, I know that. I know. It's just too hard. And I said, I get it. He told me about his parents. He told me how they have basically chosen 
his two kids over him, but that he understands that given the history. Maybe five minutes passed and I welcomed him again to use our picnic tables as needed. I asked him politely not to use drugs on our property for the sake of our kids and others. He understood that and he thanked me. I asked if I could pray for him and he replied, yeah, but I know God is disappointed in me. And I said, that's not it. That's not it. I said, God is like a broken hearted father who is waiting for you on the porch. A porch like this. I said, Zach, you're not a homeless slave to mess. You're his son, and he longs for you. His eyes welled up in silence. And then he said, that sounds familiar to me. And I told him the prodigal story again and explained that Jesus actually in that, is in that story, but he's like the other son, but far better. Instead of resenting the wayward brother like that, one brother did, Jesus left home to find, to find him, to find us. And at that point, Zach started to weep. We prayed, and I promised that I would help him if he wanted it. He said, thanks. He gathered his things and he walked away and I haven't seen them since. So here's the fourth reality that our faith depends on. That the words of that story are true. That they're trustworthy. That we can have confidence in the scriptures as the inspired word of God. That Jesus really said that. That Jesus really meant that. That the words of God remain while also there are many mysteries within the word of God that remain. Jesus himself trusted, Jesus read, and Jesus revoiced them as sacred words breathed out by God through human instruments to teach and to correct and to train our hearts, hearts that fluctuate between deceiving or condemning us, just as Zach's heart was doing to him. If we trust Jesus, we must trust the scriptures. What's the alternative? Jesus has nothing to say to Zach. Or to us. Maybe after all, God the Father doesn't love him like that. Maybe he doesn't love us like that. Maybe he's not a loving father who would risk indignity and disgrace to run off the porch and put a ring and a robe on his wayward son. Maybe God, if there is one, does fold his arms in disappointment toward us until we earn our way back in. How can we know? How can we know and what good is this story to anyone? And if it's all suspect, then we have nothing to offer the world except more of what they already have. Sentimental, quasi-spiritual ideas just to dump on the landfill of good intentions, on fleeting warm fuzzies and innocuous promises with no one to finally and fully back them up. It's either the truth about things we cannot understand, uh, cannot understand otherwise, and may not yet fully understand, or Christianity is disingenuous and useless to us in the world. You'd be just as good joining the many golfers of America, provided AstroTurf and the occasional hole-in-one makes you and your friends feel maximally alive. We have far more to offer. In the early 5th century, St. Augustine called the Scriptures our letters from home. 
Rome had just fallen to the Visigoths, and as of the year 410, the empire was no longer anyone's home. But Augustine contended that the city of God stands firm and unshakable whatever happens to the cities of man. For him and for us, the scriptures continue to remind us of that. So how can we be confident in them? Obviously, I don't have an hour or more to go deep into a very deep subject, but in the time remaining, I want to offer you some reminders about Scripture with some help from St. Augustine and, of course, the Scriptures that we've read today. The first is this. The Bible is a unique book with a unique purpose. Isaiah prophesied that the word would be like rain falling on parched earth to provide life, to provide seeds and bread for food. And he said it will not return to the Lord empty, but shall accomplish that for which he purposed it. His word, Isaiah said, will succeed in the thing for which he sent it. Nothing more, nothing less. That purpose, friends, is not science. It's not chronology or geology or even cosmology. Scripture ultimately unfolds as one coherent story whose purpose is to tell us about the Creator God's unwavering commitment to an ever-wavering creation. It tells us that story. Its ultimate purpose is to inform us about Christ, the climax of the story, and to form Christ in us, in our time. To inform us about Christ and to form Christ in us, in our time. These sacred letters are able to make us wise unto salvation. To tell us what's really going on in the world's unfolding drama and to orient us to that in our time. We don't have to, and this is one of, a part of what I'm trying to say in this first uh, idea. We don't have to combat the scientism and the criticism of the modern age to justify the scriptures. Do you know that? That is not their purpose. So Christians should not fall into the trap of pitting the miraculous and biblical against the way modernism says books should work and should be studied. Science is finite. It's in process. It's contingent and it's very, very, very helpful. It tells us how things tend to work but not how they always, and in particular, how they must work. To that point, St. Augustine said, miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. Even if the world was not created, let's just get into it, shall we? Even if the world was not created in six 24-hour days, and God for whom Peter says a day is as a thousand years, even if he used evolutionary processes, we still know who created, why he created, and what he will ultimately do with and for this creation. Second reminder. It's related to the first one. Confidence in Scripture allows for what Scripture is, which is a diverse a diversity of literature, of genre. You can think of the poetry, the prophecy, the history, the letters and gospels like maps that draw the world in different ways, all leading us to some truth about God, but not every truth in every genre. They are part of one whole communication from God. Think of it like a canonical atlas 
In other words, the canon of Scripture that we have is like a series of maps that relate to one another. Let me give you an example. Have you ever ridden a subway? What about a city train? Or maybe the tube in London? Have you used the maps on them? Have you ever used them? That kind of map was actually developed by a Londoner named Harry Beck. And it isn't trying to tell you exactly how far away the next station is, or even to locate it, particularly on a map of London or of New York, with regard to the neighborhoods around it. If that was the intention, all the stations wouldn't fit on the map you're looking at, would they? Those dots and dashes are telling you how to get from one station to another, where to change trains, and so on. This is the purpose. But let me ask you this question. Just because that map is not relative to distance, is it untrue or incomplete? No. Is the station actually a red dot? No. Is the distance between Bond Street and Oxford Circle actually one inch? No, not hardly. The map fits because what it shows has everything to do with the intentions of the map maker and the conventions of the map maker, how it's supposed to work. It doesn't have to do more and be more. Our map maker's intention, our creator's intention, and, con- and, and his conventions in each of these, these parts of our story, of our scriptures, they're as different for the Song of Solomon and the Gospel of John as they are from Deuteronomy and Paul's letter to Timothy. Each one maps the redemption story differently in their unique place in the timeline and through whom God was leading at the time. They relate to one another, but they aren't all trying to do the exact same thing. Thirdly, the scriptures come to us in the lived experience of a people, to us and through us, with names and with places and with stories. And they are not an abstract philosophical reflection or a Hammurabi code, a list of laws and truth claims that have to do with everything from economics, like I said, to geology. Instead, they come smack dab in the complexity and the contradiction even of being human and being a community. Very often, they are just descriptions and not prescriptions. They even come to us from a God who took on human lips. A particularity that should absolutely astound us. From a body, with a body, Jesus helps us to know how to live in a body. His words offer us hope when we fail at living in the body. His words put us back on our feet and point us forward. In the shadow of an empire, as Jesus lived, of a coercive religion, he helps us put the injustices of the world in their proper light and to live for justice and peace, for a better and lasting kingdom. So when Jesus shows up in Luke 24 on that Emmaus road, he tells the whole story again. Don't miss that. When you're thinking about how we should think about Scripture, don't miss what Jesus does. He tells the whole story again, reminding them of the people and the places and the things. And he's speaking throughout all the genres that exist in that very story. And what happens? Right? He says, beginning, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. And their lives are changed. A nobody named Cleopas and some other guy 
we don't know his name, on the way to a little village named Emmaus, which probably none of us have ever even been there. But these are the ones who heard, and their hearts burned. In short, this point is that the Scriptures are both human and divine, and that's the actual point. That doesn't mean they're flawed. It means they come to us and they come through us, but they come from the triune God as the Spirit inspires. Think about it. Think about what that actually means. That's a redemptive and relational work. It's us liars telling the truth. Our finite minds revealing the infinite. It's astounding. It's redemptive. The Scriptures are humanity redeemed in purpose and power, uniting with God in the message We shouldn't be surprised by nor put off by the human element to the Scriptures. What should we do? We should marvel at what God is doing. Think about it. In the particular, this otherwise violent, coercive, ethnocentric man, his lips and hands, Paul, his lips and hands are now expounding on the peace of God for all mankind. Once a murderous source of Christian persecution himself, Paul reminds all of us Timothys that the presence of pain does not mean the absence of God. And it doesn't mean the end of the story. In the world as it really is, these sacred writings are a well of hope. God breathing life into our mortal bodies as we attempt to use them for some good in an age of difficulty as Paul describes it, of greed and pride and arrogance and abuse and disrespect and ingratitude and heartlessness, slander, brutality, recklessness, conceit, unbridled pleasure-seeking, and empty moralism and religion. They help us, these scriptures help us see these things in ourselves and to know how to get on. And here's the fourth and last thing. Again, I can't hit everything about scripture. Here's the fourth and last one I think is really, really important. And the church has lived with this for two millennia. There can be room for disagreement and maintain our confidence. Listen to Augustine. He was actually especially speaking about Genesis and interpreting it. He has a whole letter on this. Genesee ad literatum. He said, in matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture, different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we have received. In such a case, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search of truth justly undermines this position, we too will fall with it. That would be to battle, this is important, That would be to battle not for the teaching of Holy Scripture, but for our own. Wishing its teaching to conform to ours. Whereas we ought to wish ours to conform to that of sacred Scripture. This is what we're all trying to do together, is to conform to the likeness of Christ. Our belief in the authority and the infallibility of Scripture, and that's what we believe. It isn't a decoding device for everything. It isn't a decoding device of all holy and textual mystery. It isn't a panacea or a cure for resolving every disagreement or tension. Our belief in Scripture's truthfulness is cause for humility and for patience, for persistence, and for growth. 
In one of his sermons, Augustine famously said, you may have heard this, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. Listen, we all have a tendency to do that. We're as likely to ignore what Jesus says about money as we are about marriage. Why? Augustine also said this, the Bible was composed in such a way that as beginners mature, its meaning grows with them. In other words, it's fixed. Its truths are fixed and reliable and trustworthy. But we aren't. And so we must mature and the meaning become more and more evident to us as we grow. What's he saying? He's echoing Paul to the Philippians, talking about pressing on as people of the resurrection. And Paul says this, he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. It's Philippians 3. In other words, we're building on something here. Each of us is growing as we're going as we're moving along together. And the takeaway is this. Sometimes we simply need to recognize that our maturity level can be either be a wall or a window when it comes to Scripture especially. Mystery remains, and it will remain. But the best way to live, the best way to live with that tension of what we know and don't know is to live with the church in that tension. Growing and maturing and interpreting the scriptures together as they've been done for two millennia. At Village Church, we are going to be continually unwavering about the truth and the authority of scripture and the purpose for which it was given. But we are also going to be very patient with people, allowing for exposure and understanding to grow. This is what was going on continually in the early church. Read all the epistles. They're dealing with this, the problems of community and maturity and all of this together. But they weren't unclear in their beliefs. They were just very clear about what it's going to take for us to move in truth together. We have only to read the Scriptures themselves to find out that's how the church works. This is what Paul was calling Timothy to. He was a pastor. And this is what we're about. And I hope you'll lean into that with us. I'm going to tell you one last word from Augustine. It's one of my favorites. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. So friend, these letters from home are written to you. From your home. From our home. From a father who has promised all of us a ring and a robe. The gospel, trustworthy and true, is your story. It's our story. So let's trust it. Why? Because we do trust Jesus. Do you trust Jesus? Lord, help us to trust you more. We believe, help our unbelief. I pray together we'd move forward and we would trust your church throughout the centuries. We would trust you and your trust in the scriptures, Lord Jesus. And you would help us to interpret fit.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.